I'm Sean Lukasik, and you're listening to the Paisanos Podcast. This week, I'm excited to share an interview with songwriter, musician, and author Franz Nikolai. As a hobbyist on keyboard myself, it's an honor to talk with Franz, who plays piano in the World Inferno Friendship Society and keyboards for the Hold Steady, when he's not focused on his solo projects, of course. Franz is the author of two books, The Humorless Ladies of Border Control and Someone Should Pay for Your Pain. He's written countless articles for publications like Spin, Vice, Slate, and The New York Times. And he's a professor at Bard College and Columbia University. Personally, I look forward to seeing Franz on stage with The Hold Steady each year at the Brooklyn Bowl when they present their Massive Nights event in December. And I was so glad for this chance to go in-depth on topics like virtual songwriting, pandemic projects, and the history of music on the internet. If you enjoy this one, please subscribe and leave a review and share it with all of your friends and paisanos. Thanks so much for listening. Here is Franz Nikolai. So, Franz, thanks so much for joining the Paisanos podcast. I, I really enjoy having you on today. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to uh, talk with you um, as an artist, a musician, a writer, um, and and sort of everything that you've got going on in, in the world of creativity. Um, first and foremost, with the role of the internet that that's sort of played throughout your career. Obviously, the internet today is different than it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and so I guess let's just start there and, and sort of ask how the process um, has changed for you when it comes to uh, creating, writing, songwriting, um, and even sort of putting stuff out into the world um, now versus when you first kind of started your career? Sure. So I've been in the music business for 25 years, which means I've basically seen the entire history of of music on on the internet (laughs) Um, from the the very beginnings. I mean, I remember when I was in, it must have been late college or my early post-collegiate years, um, and I was making, making my own music and, uh, for the, for the, the original garage band.com, um, <laughs> opened up and this was the first, I don't know if you remember this, this was the first place where you could sort of upload songs and have them get them critiqued by strangers. Yeah. Um, and, and what a revelation that was in terms of, oh, people who, you know, aren't my friends, uh, are going to hear these songs that I wrote and recorded and have an opinion on them. Yeah. Um, Obviously, uh, Napster, uh, 99, 2000, um, you know, at that point I wasn't, you know, I was much more weighted on the side of being a music fan than being an active participant in the music Mm -hmm. industry. So, um, that was pretty exciting. Um, especially, you know, there was the dot-com boom. I was living in New York, so I had a job at a dot-com, had, you know, reasonably fast internet by the standards of 1999 (laughs) at work. Um, and a CD burner. So that was pretty exciting too. Um, you know, uh, um, my space as a, uh, you know, as someone who was in bands in the early two thousands was a, you know, in, in a lot of ways remains, uh, 
the best um, sort of community building experience um, for bands uh, for a couple years there in terms of being in touch. You know, that was the first time where you could really feel like you could contact the people who were fans of your band directly Mm -hmm. or be in contact with them to the extent that you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of booking shows and, and sort of on the DIY level, being part of a network of, of, of bands and promoters and people who were putting on shows and Mm -hmm. fans. Um, uh, the ability to access, I mean, the, the, the biggest plus that's sort of maintained through that is, um, independent distribution. Yeah. The ability to, uh, sell your music, distribute your music, stream your music, get your music on, on the streaming platforms for a nominal fee, um, uh, through various websites. You know, I want to give a shout out to CD baby mm-hmm. who are probably stuck with a name that they, that they wish they hadn't start, <laughs> you know, started with in the, in the aughts. But, you know, for my money remain the, the most artist friendly, um, uh, company for that sort of thing in terms of now digital that, de- you know, then physical distribution now di- digital distribution. Um, you know, Bandcamp obviously has been great for people. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, right. The, um, the, the internet giveth and the internet taketh away. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to hear you talk about um, like Napster and I remember LimeWire um, and, you know, those those uh, it took work to really like burn a CD and and put that uh, playlist together, um, similar to how it was, you know, making a a mixtape or whatever before that. But um, but the free access to music, I know, was a big problem for the industry um, and they've done everything to make sure that that's not possible anymore. Well, they haven't done that much. I mean, the, the damage was done, right? Sure. The, like sure. The, the revenues of the, of the music industry between 2000 and by the time, you know, Napster was shut down have literally halved. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made up some, some of that on, uh, when, and the advent of iTunes a few years later, um, and then, uh, and then streaming, but it's never, it's never completely recovered. And, um, the, you know, the, I mean, Spotify is one of those companies. I think like we understand on some level that Amazon is bad for the world and that Uber is bad for the world, but mm-hmm. that, but people have sort of made their, their, um, um, it's just too convenient. Right. And so people are just willing to, to live with that knowledge. And Spotify is one of those companies, you know, Spotify was built on, on torrenting technology. The original Spotify library was built on, on the the pirated music collections of the founders of Spotify. (laughs) And they've maintained that, that sort of attitude. They're not fundamentally interested in, in music as such. They're in, 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 interested in, um, monopolizing the audio listening lives of their, of their users and what they've managed to do, you know, and this is, it's really stark Uh, from a music fans point of view. Obviously it's incredible. You have uh, as close to a universal library, obviously it's not a universal Mm -hmm. library, but it's, but it's closer than the world has ever come. Um, and that is great for the music fan. It's great for, it's great for the, um, up and coming musician who has access to all this, you know, they can put all this stuff in their ears in the way that someone my age never could have. Um, 
On the other hand, you know, uh, they've eliminated the last vestiges of people paying directly for music, mm-hmm. right? So uh, iTunes, uh, the iTunes music store, um, and to some extent Bandcamp was a little bit of clawing that back for a few years in terms of paying a nominal fee, a dollar a song um, for recorded music, and then but then streaming music has completely, you know, more or less eliminated that, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, on the ground for a musician, what do you do? Um, you know, when I was when I started touring in the aughts, and then through the through the early teens, um, the big revenue source on tour was selling CDs, mm-hmm. uh, and CDs were a pretty good profit margin. You could make them for a dollar and sell them for ten dollars. Um, and nobody's buying CDs, and nobody's buy nobody's buying. Um, very few people are buying MP3s, mm-hmm. um, and then so from the point of view of the touring musician, what are you selling? Not you know the the, the critical mass of people who have turntables uh, is not large, uh, and from a logistical point of view, um, LPs are large; they're bulky, um, especially if you're doing international touring. You simply can't bring enough to stock your entire tour. Yeah. Um, uh, and so just in terms of like someone went to your show, they liked what they heard. What do you have to offer them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's, it's a, it's a real conundrum. You, yeah. You're, you're in, you're in the dry goods business um, <laughs> in terms of trying to find a thing that's broadly of interest to, to, to anyone who might come to a, to my, that might come to a, to a show. And, and they're just, um, we haven't been able to replace that. What about making the music specifically? I mean, I know um, I, I saw um, you with the Hold Steady at the last um, Massive Nights series in, in Brooklyn there. And as part of that, um, you know, guys uh, do sort of sound check and talk and share things. And you talked a lot about the process, the songwriting process and sort of uploading files to Dropbox and and listening to those and, and throwing feedback you know, in a Google doc or whatever, obviously that process is so much different than getting to getting a group together physically and bringing your ideas into the room. Um, what is that like? I mean, wh- where you're, where you're literally songwriting across a v- virtual connection. Yeah. I mean, that's, has really, was really accelerated by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of musicians I know, um, took that opportunity to really upgrade their home studio, uh, situation, home recording Mm -hmm. situation. People bought nicer microphones. Um, people learned how to use the software that they had maybe half learned. (laughs) Um, you know, it was really only a month or two into the pandemic before I started fielding emails from people being like, Hey, I'm making this record. Can I send you some files? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Sitting around, you know, um, you know, a lot of people made, made pandemic home records, um, the hold steady had already sort of started working that way. Uh, cause at the time I was living in California, uh, Steve, our guitar, one of our guitar players lives in Memphis. Um, and so when we, when we started writing music again in 2017, it just made sense for us to be at least in the early stages of sending instrumental tracks to Craig, the singer, um, to be building them up a little bit at home. Uh, and sharing them that way. Mm-hmm. Um, although at that point, 
it was usually very much, uh, you know, one of us would make a very rough demo. Craig might sing over it and then we would get together in a room. Um, in the pandemic era and beyond, uh, it's been much more of, um, filling out relatively complete demos before we get in a room. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, you know, we have the benefit of doing that because we're um, musicians with 20 years of experience working with each other. Yeah. Um, we have that chemistry and understanding of what, what, what everyone needs and wants. Um, I think, you know, it might be harder to, to be starting from scratch with, with people. I'm not sure. Um, but you can't beat that convenience. Um, there are upsides and downsides. I, um, have feel like that it gives you an opportunity to do a sort of proof of concept demo. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember in the early years of that band, sometimes I would bring in music, um, and it would be a little hard to, you know, sometimes you bring in music and it's obvious to, to, to everyone in the room how it's going to go and what they're going to play. And sometimes it's not. Yeah. And it's not always easy to explain how you're hearing it uh, in in person in the moment. Sure. Um, so working from home gives you the opportunity to sort of fill out the sound and not be prescriptive about it, uh, but to say, here's, here's how I imagine that it might look. Yeah. Yeah. and sound. Um, and then people can sort of wrap their heads around it in advance of getting in a room together. And obviously, you know, then it goes through the filter of the specific musicians. And when it comes out the other side, even if it doesn't go in sounding like a hold steady song, it comes out sounding like a hold steady <laughs> song. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so that's a benefit. Uh, the downside is that I think that, that prescriptiveness the, where if you hand, if, if you send around a very full sounding demo, uh, it can be harder for people to put their own stamp on it mm-hmm. or to, or to come at it with really open ears in terms of what their part might, might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you try to balance that in all kinds of ways. I think sometimes I've erred on the side of sending too complete an arrangement, which I've tried to pull back from <laughs> Tad. Uh, one of our other guitar players is pretty good about sending, um, <laughs> very sketchy demos <laughs> in many cases, <laughs> um, which gives us a lot of room to play with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, although that's not always the case, you know, he sends very, he can send very full, full band arrangements too. He's actually a really good drummer. So oh, it, particularly in, in that sense, uh, the drum parts can be, can be pretty well f- filled out. Um, Would you, so cons- I don't know. That's just, that's one of those sort of, you, you know, the, the needle waves back and forth, but, but it, for, for a band where not everybody lives in the same area or people, you know, people have families. We, we're not, when the, when the band started, we were rehearsing twice a week for two or two or three hours a time. Mm-hmm. And we could really write in, in the practice room and we just don't have that kind of flexibility in our lives now. So, um, yeah. The Dropbox writing works for that. Yeah, and kind of nice that you don't even really need it to be. I mean, considering that you've got the twenty years of experience there working together, and um, and you know the the very fast upload speeds and things now that uh, that weren't around at the you know the advent of the band. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say sometimes I like I would I would like to have a couple a little more rehearsal time before we go into the studio. Mm-hmm. These last three records, you know, we 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 get these demos and then we're 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 really only in the rehearsal space for a day or two 
playing these songs for the very first time before we're in the studio, um, which on the one hand maybe captures the discovery process of the song. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we definitely have had that experience of making the record and never having played the song really (laughs) as a band. And then we, we very quickly discover we settle into something else in a live version where we're like, Oh, I wish I, that's how I should have played it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, that's, you know, so you guys, you guys put out an album open door policy in 2020, um, which had been worked on pre pandemic, but then you're in the process of releasing an album, uh, during that time. And, um, and eventually, uh, touring it to some degree uh, with with nobody in the room, no fans in the room with you. I can yeah. talk all day about what that meant to me as a fan and, and what that experience was like watching virtually, uh, seeing you guys on stage and in um, different uh, cities and places around the world. Um, but what was that experience like live streaming a show with nobody in the audience and, you know, seeing maybe faces on televisions or getting a little bit of feedback here and there, but essentially just, uh, relying on that virtual connection. Yeah. I mean, it was very surreal and very emotional as you can imagine. Um, I remember having a very emotional reaction just to seeing um, crew people on the stage, like setting up the stage, just being like, wow, it's people who are good at what they do, doing the thing that they do. (laughs) Um, What a great thing. Um, You know, it was a little bit like the experience of being on late night television where you're uh, there in those cases, there's a, you know, there's maybe a hundred people in the room, but you can't really see them. They're, you know, they're 20 yards away. They're behind really bright lights and a lot of cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're sort of shutting that out and acting as if sure. uh, going, you know, you sort of make a mental image of, of, you know, a few thousand people mm-hmm. and, and play to that mental <laughs> image. And so playing to an empty room at the Brooklyn Bowl, for example, was a little bit like that. Um, we had these TV screens uh, around the sides and the back of the room that was showing, um, you know, people zoom faces. Um, and that was really great to see that helped. Although I did find after a couple songs that it was extremely distracting. <laughs> I was missing my mark. So I had to really uh, block that out. Um, but then, you know, and we've talked about this before the, at the end uh, when, you know, the guitar feedback was still going and had looped and we were all sort of sitting over by the bowling alleys looking at the screens and the, the director was flipping through and people were holding up messages. That was, that was a really emotional moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was on both sides of the screen. I, I could say, uh, you know, being able to have some access to the music in that way was something a lot of us really needed uh, at that time. W- would you consider New River a, a pandemic album or or was it the pandemic that just kind of made it possible to finally put out into the world? Yeah, that's what it was. I mean, okay. I was, um, again, f- you know, f- April of 2020, uh, sitting around trying to figure out what to do with my nights after the kids went to bed. Um, and I had a couple of fully formed songs that I'd written over the la- the previous couple of years. I hadn't put out a record since 2015. Uh, I had a lot of music instrumentals. Uh, some of them uh, are, were stuff that sort of, for whatever reason hadn't made the cut as a hold steady song. 
but that I still thought were good. Um, I have a huge slush pile of, of words, some of which becomes lyrics, some of which becomes uh, <laughs> fiction um, or writing prose of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I stayed up for a week or two just um, marrying the two together and, and pretty quickly had a 10 or 11 songs that were, that were ready to go. Um, and then of course I had to wait mm-hmm. another yeah, year yeah. to record them, to get people sure. in the room to record them. And I know you've talked about this before, but you're a guy who likes to release, uh, vinyl as well. And, uh, it, that wasn't too easy to do at the time either. I understand. I mean, honestly, I don't give a shit what, what how it comes out. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I'm not like a vinyl fetishist or anything. Uh, I'm, I want the music to get out there in whatever form the most people are going to, are going to hear it. Um, and honestly, after that experience, I don't think I, I, I'm going to prioritize, uh, vinyl going forward. Um, Interesting. because, uh, I mean, that was a particularly bad couple of years in terms of the turnaround on vinyl mm-hmm. for a variety of structural reasons, which we don't need to get into. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote, I, I wrote the songs in April, 2020. I couldn't, get people in a room to record them until a year later, spring of 21. And then, um, and then it took another year and a half to get the vinyl made. Mm -hmm. And so by that point, you're just like, well, this is old news. Yeah. It's really frustrating. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I'm not particular, but the, the, from the label point of view, you know, vinyl is where they are making their money back. Mm. Um, and so there's, from their point of view, um, you have to wait till you have something you can sell, which makes total sense to me. Yeah. But I will say that the, the, the most exciting feeling that I've had in terms of releasing music in the last several years is those, those couple of years where the hold steady was recording and then, and then putting the songs up on Bandcamp a few months later. Um, so, uh, just because the turnaround was so quick, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like we're not taking, enough advantage of what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, this, this, the convenience of distribution. Um, and I understand why not, you know, uh, but in terms of like the immediacy of like, Hey, we wrote and recorded this song uh, and we want people to hear it. Um, you know, you have the opportunity, not that this happens all the time, but you, in theory, you could write a song in the afternoon you know, in the morning, record yeah. it in the afternoon and have people hearing it that night. Yeah. Uh, and I wish that happened more often because that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and you could really bring people along with the process as well. You're talking about, you know, recording it one way and then ultimately playing it live and, and wishing, oh, I wish I did this. Um, there's 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 the the possibility of bringing people along in that process, even if you release it one way and it changes a little bit a month later. Um, you know, I don't know what all that looks like necessarily, but um, love that idea, that bad band camp structure you talked about of, you know, writing things and releasing them as soon as they're ready. Um, is is pretty unique i will say that from from the from the band point of view uh there is a way in which uh it was exciting for us to do that but people don't take it as seriously Mm -hmm. you get sort of caught uh between a a a catch-22 uh of which uh um you know we released an album's worth of material but no one uh is going to treat it as an album until you release it all at once. Sure. Uh, 
so during those two years, the, the question we kept getting in those soundcheck parties and, and elsewhere was, when are you going to compile this stuff? When are you going to put it all together? We we're like, okay, I guess people want <laughs> us to compile it and put it all together. And then when we did that, the reaction was like, well, this is not a real album. We heard all these songs before. It's like, oh, <laughs> fuck, you know? <laughs> yeah. You could have compiled it. <laughs> what do you want from us? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I mean, I appreciate you doing that. And, and truly, I mean, it's, it's, it is a, a totally different lens into, um, into the process and into, you know, how stuff gets released and, uh, the immediacy of it is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, I mean, and also, you know, I will say that if you're not paying it very close, that's, that's like a hold steady super fan reaction. Sure. So there's a whole chunk of people who didn't even know because because media outlets are not going to cover you releasing songs on Bandcamp. Sure. Uh, so from that point of view, there were you know x thousands of other people who were like, "Wow, hold steady, record. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never heard this stuff before. Yeah. This, this is super cool." And so that's the argument for compiling this stuff or for saving it up until and and doing a proper album yep. release. Yeah. But you know, a, an album release in this day and age is going to be songs that you wrote a year plus earlier mm-hmm. or in the case of price of progress, you know, the album's coming out in 2023 songs we started writing in 2020 mm-hmm. and that feels like too long. I want to, um, uh, switch topics a little bit because I know that you've been, uh, working for, uh, well over a year now, unfortunately, um, with the, the Ukrainian music scene. Um, and as the war has forged on there, I want to ask about what, what that looks like today. What, what is the music scene like in Ukraine or what are the artists up to? What are you up to as it relates to the efforts there? I mean, the, I can't really speak to the entirety of the Ukrainian music scene. Sure, sure. Um, normal life continues apace in a lot of the country, especially the Western half of the country. Um, you know, people are playing shows, people are recording. Uh, a lot of people are in the army or in, or in the territorial defense militias. Um, uh, so that's, um, uh, you know, disruptive mm, <laughs> to yeah. being in a band, yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, a lot of people have emigrated, particularly to, to Germany and to Poland. Um, I can't speak in, in granular detail. Um, well, and, and maybe I should back up a little bit too, for people who don't necessarily know, um, I, I understand and and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, when the war broke out, you, you leapt into action trying to uh help with connections and funding um do i well i mean in in this only in the sense that that a lot of people did you know my my family has stronger has connections to ukraine maybe than the average american my wife Mm is ukrainian american and she has relatives living there and we've spent and she's an academic whose research is based in Ukraine and we've spent extended periods of time living there. Um, and so, um, you know, there was a period of trying to figure out, um, you know, can we take people in here? What's the visa situation? Uh, who's, um, you know, should we go to the Polish border and try to, um, facilitate there? Um, you know, what, what, what are the, what's the best things we can do? Mm-hmm. Um, Spin asked me to write an article about the mu- Ukrainian music scene. Uh, so I sort of, I did leap into action <laughs> 
in terms of that, mm-hmm. um, raising awareness and, uh, Craig and I played that fundraiser that Eugene Hoots put together. Yeah. He's a guy I've known for a long time. Um, you know, as the full scale invasion has become more normalized, um, you know, it's, unfortunately it's less dramatic in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We're still in touch with a lot of people there. Um, again, Maria has been really involved in terms of, in terms of raising awareness and, and talking about, uh, Ukrainian music and talking about particularly, uh, you know, this, this, this ongoing argument about Russian cultural hegemony mm. and well, Russian, you know, cultural colonialism mm-hmm. and imperialism, um, which, you know, remains a fraught issue. Is that, I mean, that, that feels really front and center even today. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert just postponed indefinitely the release of her book, which kind of does exactly what you just described in terms of Russian culture, um, you know, talking about uh, 1970s Soviet uh, infrastructure. And um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of creative venture and the way it's, it's playing out today? Sure. I mean, I can't speak to Elizabeth Gilbert specifically because I, I only saw the headline go go by and I haven't read the specifics. But I will say that the, I think the conversation gets really simplified in, in the headlines to, oh, they're canceling Tchaikovsky and Pushkin. It's like, no, it's not that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's about, it, it is about the ways in which the, the nature of, of colonialism and imperialism is that cultures get subsumed into the hegemonic culture, mm-hmm. right? So, for example... Adam Curtis put out this documentary on the BBC a few months ago, which is a really extraordinary thing. It's based on um, footage uh, that they found in a BBC closet in, I think, in Moscow of um, just tons and tons of documentary footage uh, uh, from across the Soviet Union between 1989 and 1999. So the, the fall of communism and the and the and the re- reconstruction in the nineties, mm-hmm. and the headline, uh, and it's a it's a seven hour documentary, seven seven hour long sections, and at the be- at the top of every hour it says Russia, it says this is Russia, mm-hmm. but the footage is from not just Russia but Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine, Chechnya, um, sure, uh, T- Tajikistan, but to frame it as Russia. Is you know even from a basically well-meaning you know artist of the left like like Curtis is is really misleading and <laughs> and feeds into this the the, the this um, the the Russian chauvinist position that all of these countries and cultures and nations are to some extent Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was really, and I really, I, you know, I watched all seven hours and I really admired it. And I was glad I did, but, but it was really shocking that someone in 2023 would, would say all of this footage is Russia and all of the, these experiences of the fall of communism, um, are subsumed into the, and, and subservient to the experience of Russia. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the, 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 the conversation and the resetting of the meter is about in, the, in this past year is saying, um, you know what, maybe, you know, obviously, yes, that, okay, so there are, you know, uh, 
Russian intelligentsia, Russian cultural refugees, um, the experience of being, you know, maybe you're a, a, a liberal writer uh, who doesn't feel safe in Russia anymore and you've emigrated. Um, but is that, is that, and, and, and that's a really difficult position to be in, but is that a more difficult position to be in than the Ukrainian writer, the Ukrainian musician whose, um, whose culture has not been celebrated on the international stage for Mm -hmm. centuries, um, and whose, whose nation is trying to be wiped out. Um, you know, I, I, let me put it this way. Um, my family and I were traveling a few years ago and we went to, I forget what country we were in, but we were at an Iraqi restaurant. It was run by Iraqi refugees and they were very nice to us, but it felt like a very, and we, and we, you know, we, we went there and we wanted to, but it felt, it felt extremely awkward and embarrassing to be an American eating at, at an Iraqi restaurant, even an American who didn't, on, you know, who protested against the Iraq war, mm-hmm. who, uh, you, know, it, you know, was by no means a supporter of the American government in, in many of its international escapades in the last 20, 20 years, you're still, you still have to answer for it. Yeah. And so for, I, I'm not entirely sympathetic to the position of Russian cultural figures, dissident figures, refugee figure, figures, whose argument is we are as much of a victim as, as this situation, as sure. the Ukrainian, as our Ukrainian equivalent figures are, because that's just simply not the case. Well, and I, I and it's not fair, but it may, it may not be fair, but it's not the case. And so the, to the extent that, the, you know, that an opera company, you know, thinks twice about staging, um, Eugene Onegin for the umpteenth time and, and thinks about maybe there, may, you know, maybe there's repertoire from Ukrainian composers that we might program instead. Uh, I don't think that's an unfair position to take. Totally. And I appreciate that, you know, there, there's, um, it, it, all of this is complex and you do a lot of deep thinking around all the work that you do, all the, the creativity that you put out into the world. And, and I appreciate being able to ask you, you know, about a lot of these things. Um, and you, you write about so much, whether it's in fiction, nonfiction work, uh, that you've put out in the world in the articles you've written, obviously, um, in the music and all the different bands that you're part of. Um, and, and how do you sort of, how do you prioritize that? How do you decide what's the next thing you're, you're working on? Is it just sort of what's in front of you or, um, you know, what's, what's that day to day like for you as you're, you're considering, uh, what, what's the next most important thing for you to work on? Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, there's a way in which, um, for most of my young adult life, I really was working on a lot. I, you know, I had a lot of plates in the air. And then when I became a parent, um, one of the adjustments was realizing that I could only have one major project (laughs) aside from, uh, aside from raising the kids Uh, the other that I could be working on at a time. So there's a way in which I'm still work, fin- working through the backlog from 10 years ago in terms <laughs> of stuff that I had started. Yeah. Um, um, it's my daughter's 10th birthday today as we're recording this. Oh, that's and great. what I'm working on is a, 
is cutting down the manuscript of a book that I started working on in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, so a book that I started, you know, she was two, but maybe I still hadn't quite come to that realization yet. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's why I'm saying that maybe I'm, there's a way in which I'm still working through that backlog. And I think once I get this manuscript off my, off my desk, that'll be the first time maybe in that decade where when I finish that project, I'll have a clean slate in terms of what's the next project going to be. I mean, I already know what it's going to be probably, but um, I think, you know, I want to balance the the music stuff and the writing stuff. I want to balance the hold steady stuff and this and, and whatever I'm working on independently of the hold steady Mm -hmm. Um, things present. It all sort of sorts itself out. I don't know. Things present themselves in terms of freelance work. Um, you know, a band will, or an artist will, will email me and say, Hey, I want you to play on my record and here's so many tracks and they're going to pay me. So that, that, ta- that jumps to the front of the line. Yeah, yeah. Um, hold steady stuff is booked, you know, a year in advance. Uh, or at least I, I know sort of roughly what's coming, coming up. Uh, I have, a, you know, I have my teaching jobs, um, so that, you know, I know when my classes are going to be. I know that I have a day or two a week where I can work on other things. It's a it's a scheduling conflict, but uh, but I but in terms of the main projects, I'm just trying to alternate. You know, sure. I did I, New River came out my solo record last year, so that takes care of that for a couple of years. I have to finish uh, the thing before that was my novel. Someone should pay mm-hmm. for your pain. So in terms of alternating between writing and music, I know that the next thing up should probably be an, the, the next book, mm, which sure. is convenient because that's the thing on my desk. <laughs> so, so once I get that uh, off my desk, then I'll probably think about is you know is the next musical project, do I want it to be another solo record of songs with lyrics or do I want it to be another sort of instrumental art music project? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that the next writing project is should be another novel in terms of the rotation and also will be another novel in terms of that's what I had the idea for and, and the pages for, you know, it sort of works like that. Yeah. And I mean, as long as we're looking to the future too, and, and thinking about the world that your kids are growing up in, um, it, what, what does, have you put any thought into like how that continues to evolve the, the process of writing and releasing books and music and articles, um, the existentialism of artificial intelligence and its role in all of this stuff? I mean, do you, do you think about that? Do you, do you think about ways that you can maybe use it in the work that you're doing or um, is it just kind of out there and, and you're doing, you've got your process and they'll eventually have theirs? AI, I, I I don't know or care about. Fair. <laughs> I really I really don't. It has nothing to do with what I do. I don't know. These things will sort themselves out. I, it doesn't seem like it's that sort of thing is going to be useful. Yeah. I, I, I mean, people are it, yeah, people like, are. I think it I, just puts the the human work even more at a premium. To to be honest, um, you know. Yeah, the, it seems like a thing that. Uh, a, a tech panic you know before that it was crypto before that it was yeah. whatever you know the metaverse 
these things these things come and go and they and they don't make a splash and the same sort of people get excited about them and the same sort of people freak out about them and i don't understand them or nor am i interested in them and so i can go on and do my own yeah thing i you know i'm a, I, I teach at the college level so at the beginning of the year we got a flurry of emails from various people being like you know chat gpt in the classroom here's how you should you know, watch out for students writing their essays with it, or here's how you incorporate it, or here's how you use it as a teaching exercise. And it's just like, I don't, I don't know. Teaching is, I have my lesson plan and it's hard enough without thinking about that. And the, the students are going to be more knowledgeable and savvy about it than I am. Yeah. Um, if they are using, you know, I, I happen to think that most of them are earnest about learning uh, and so are going to legitimately try to be write, writing their essays. Uh, yeah. And the, if there's one that isn't, that's the problem. That's a problem for that student and not me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a conversation, um, in an earlier episode, uh, and the guest brought up, um, the reef lectures and Stuart Russell. I don't know if you're familiar with those and BBC, BBC puts them on every year. It's a series of lectures and, and Stuart Russell talked about artificial intelligence. This is a guy who spent most of his life studying it and he's not a panic stricken, uh, techie. And so that gives me a little bit of hope. And I, I just wondered if, if you thought about it in terms of writing or songwriting or, or just sort of in general, but, um, I don't think about it at all. Yeah. Great. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. Uh, well, um, you know, there's every year you put your annual, uh, audio yearbook out there, any sort of sneak preview or anyone that we should be paying attention to that might end up on the list this year. Oh my God. I, I you know, I already, have 150 songs on it and it's <laughs> only halfway through the year. So it's going to be a real awesome. <laughs> problem to, to cut down. Uh, what have I been, I've been on this, I've been on a real Sondheim kick for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, Steven Sondheim, the musical theater composer. Yeah. Um, I think, I feel like people probably assumed I was much more of a musical theater head uh, than I, than I, gen, than I have been for most of my life. <laughs> yeah. I think mostly because of the way I sing, which is sort of theatrical, but sure. it wasn't about musical theater. It was just about, I, I just sing that way. And I like, <laughs> cause I grew up singing along to Mark Eitzel and Scott Walker and people like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think now I'm, I, you know, I'm legitimately, I've got the bug. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a deep, I'm in a deep Sondheim dive. Uh, there's a podcast called putting it together that goes through his songs one by one. It's like an hour conversation on each. And I'm like, you know, hundreds of hours into, into it at that point, <laughs> at this <Good> point, <laughs> which I understand is not for, not for everybody, but, but that's where I am. Love it. Uh, I don't know. Terry Adams solo records. I've listened to a bunch of the, the keyboardist from NRBQ. Okay. Um, those, uh, what else did I like? I, I liked the White Reaper record. There's a there's a you know from the from the rock side. I checked out Sheer Mag for the first time. That was a lot of fun. There's a group up here called Batfangs. It's a Don Giovanni band. It's these two women, uh, Betsy from X Hex. Um, they do real like sort of classic rock throwback stuff. They're a lot of fun. Cool. 
those are off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm excited. Yeah. To, to dig into some of that stuff. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to have this conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let people know to just kind of follow you around. Um, you, you said, uh, at Franz Nikolai everywhere, uh, on social media. And of course, Franz Nikolai.com, your, uh, your website, um, anything else that you want to share or add, uh, it, it, while we're here at Franz Nikolai, not everywhere. <laughs> I, tr- I downloaded TikTok once no TikTok. for about 20 minutes and I was like, this is clearly not for me and yeah. deleted it. I think at, you know, at 45, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in the market for new social media outlets. A few so more hours of Sondheim podcasts. And I think only the, only the old guard social media. <laughs> and as those disappear, so will my social media presence yeah. in the year, in the decades going at forward. At Franz Nikolai on MySpace. We, yeah, there you it. go. Perfect. <laughs> Friendster. <laughs> That's right. I was never on Friendster, actually. I never, I, I was a late adopter of most yeah. of these things. Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah, Franz Nikolai. Awesome. Thanks so much, Franz. Okay. Thanks, Sean. The Paisanos Podcast is produced by Creagent Marketing. It's written and hosted by me, Sean Lukasik. You can find our show notes at paisanospodcast.com or visit our YouTube page to watch the video version. If you have guest or topic ideas, email me at sean at paisanospodcast.com. Thanks for listening.